First Chronicles, or rather Second Chronicles, chapter 30 and 31. We've got a lot of uh, feedback here. Second Chronicles 30 and 31 and page 366 in our Bibles here. As we quickly approach another election, I'm sure we are all enjoying the uplifting effect of all the political commercials. <laughs> Nothing makes you feel warmer than uh, hearing political opponents say nasty things about each other over and over and over. Uh, if you did receive an email uh, from me to the church family yesterday, you know I kind of got drawn into the political thing when uh, someone falsely sent a letter in my name as a letter to the editor of the Izaki Press and uh, uh, critical of one of the candidates uh, for governor, uh, clearing up that I did not send any letter to the editor actually provides me with a good starting point for uh, what we want to look at today. Because uh, one thing we want to understand about uh, leadership of uh, King Hezekiah is that he understood it's the worship of God that will unify people across all kinds of lines. Because we have a unifying factor that transcends anything else. Because we, we operate on a higher plane. So as we um, return to our study of 2 Kings, you'll see we're actually in 2 Chronicles. Um, but 2 Chronicles provides, as you may know, some supplemental information about the kings we study in 2 Kings. And so what we find in these two chapters today is not found in 2 Kings, but it was really launched uh, by our introduction to this important king, Hezekiah. Uh, last August, or this past August, when we, were, we took a break from our study of kings to look at the uh, uh, values, uh, church, core values of Open Door Bible Church, we introduced Hezekiah, and there's a key verse in 2 Kings 18, verse 3, that says this, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. Which is interesting because it says his father David, a way you can also say his ancestor David, because David actually preceded him some 300 years, but indeed he was a direct descendant of David. But if Hezekiah was going to be a godly king, he could not follow the example of his own dad, Ahaz, who was very wicked. In fact, he had to go all the way up the chain of his ancestry, and he followed the model of David. And I think the challenge to us all here this morning is this. Will we be someone's David that is having a residual effect generations after we're gone? Whose David will you be? And what David are you following? What Hezekiah are you following? How can you have an impact by those you indeed do influence? So as we uh, begin looking at these two chapters, 2 Chronicles 30, verse 1 to 5, in immediately uh, shows us the value that Hezekiah put on unity. Hezekiah sent word to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh 
inviting them to come to the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. If you think about what we've just read, it's saying Israel and Judah. So let's get a little uh, view of what we've seen through the past months because for some 200 years, the nation had been divided into a northern and southern kingdom, Israel and Judah. Ever since King Solomon's son, Rehoboam, had uh, an attitude that split the kingdom into two, you had these two really different nations. Ten tribes were what were called Israel, and two tribes were called Judah. And as we read in verse 1, he reached out to Israel, though he was the king of Judah. But he calls Israel by the names of Ephraim and Manasseh, just two of those tribes. Well, were they the only two invited to come to this new celebration of the Passover? No, but that was a way to refer to the northern kingdom because these were the two huge dominant tribes of that northern area of Israel. The other tribes had tiny allocations because their families were smaller, their population was less, etc. So Ephraim and Manasseh are the ones uh, described here as Israel, and he wants them to be involved when he reinstitutes worship. Verse 2, the king and his officials and the whole assembly in Jerusalem decided to celebrate the Passover in the second month. They had not been able to celebrated at the regular time, which was the first month, because not enough priests had consecrated themselves and the people had not assembled in Jerusalem. The plan seemed right both to the king and the whole assembly. They decided to send a proclamation throughout Israel, north, from Beersheba to Dan, calling the people to come to Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. It had not been celebrated in large numbers according to what had been written. You know, when we first introduced uh, Hezekiah in 2 Kings 18, uh, we saw that one of his first acts as king was to destroy the high places, that those places of false worship around the nation. But he not only was eradicating the nation of those high places, false worship, he knew he had to reinstitute true worship, and first on his list of spiritual reforms was we got to get back to doing the three major feasts that God had commanded us as a nation. And evidently, the very first one on the calendar was Passover. We saw in verse 5 here that the feast had only been celebrated in small numbers in Judah, so some, some people had gotten together and done Passover, but it had never been done on a, on a national scale like it was supposed to be. This seems to be in Hezekiah's very first year as a young 25-year-old king. Uh, actually, back in August, we had looked at the previous chapter, 2 Chronicles 29, verse 3 tells us it's the first month of the first year of his reign. He had just jumped in, but they weren't ready to just like do Passover. And Passover, according to the Levitical law, was to be done in the first month of the Jewish year. First month of the Jewish year is our kind of late March to early April, which is why actually Easter in our calendar still falls somewhere in that late March, uh, April uh, time frame. But that's when Passover was celebrated. Passover was one of these three major feasts of Israel. And, and Passover was that time when they were celebrating what God had already done for them in delivering them as a nation out of Egypt under Moses 700 years before 
And so they're going to do it, verse 2, in the second month. That may seem to oppose what God's word said about the first month, but actually back in Numbers 9, God had said it's okay if there are extenuating circumstances to celebrate it in the second month. And so they took advantage of that. And because they weren't really ready, it says, they, they couldn't do it at the regular time, verse 3. There weren't enough uh, priests who had consecrated. There was a process to prepare spiritually for that. What's even most significant, though, is, as we started out saying, who he invited, Judah and Israel. It was, it was very unexpected for a king from Judah in the south to reach out to the Jews in the north, an entirely different kingdom for 200 plus years. It was unusual for them to do anything together. So what had changed? Well, Hezekiah was the new leader, and there were some remarkable circumstances that had changed as well. So as we look at the two sides of this uh, nation or people of Israel and Judah, Something had changed because during the early days of Hezekiah's life, probably a youngster or a teenager, the Assyrians had come and really closed down the northern kingdom. The Assyrians were the new emerging superpower, and they had come and conquered Samaria. And in so doing, we studied this just a couple of passages ago, really, in Kings, they had come and taken a, a lot of captives, not everybody, but a lot of captives out of that northern section and had deported them throughout other properties that the um, Assyrians controlled. And so they really were no longer a nation independently ruled. Assyria was in charge of them. Well, all this was happening while Hezekiah was a young man growing up in the home of his dad, who was evil. This was on his nightly news, if you will. And so when he became a king, he decided, I'm not going to be like dad. He, he made the statement to himself, I will not be like the bad example I grew up with. I will be a leader who is impacting people like David impacted people. And so he said, I need to do something different. I'm going to, I'm going to invite even our rivals to the north. Um, let's do Passover together. Come. And so the officials agree. Hezekiah wanted to worship God. He wanted God to be, to be praised. He wanted God to be obeyed and God to be central. And so he sought out not only that his own people would worship God, but those people would worship God with them. Surely, celebrating Passover would be that spiritual encouragement around which Jews from both sides of that political line could unite. A godly leader seeks to unify people around spiritual priorities. You notice it said in verse 5, uh, from Beersheba to Dan. Very simple geographically, but Beersheba is the southernmost city of Judah, the south. Dan is the northernmost city of the northern area of Israel. And so it's basically saying, from top to bottom, I want everybody to know about this. 200 years had passed since they had been one. Over 200 years. In fact, very close to the number of years that America has been independent of England. 
if you don't want to think back. And now he's pulling them together. A lot of, a lot of water had gone under the bridge. A lot of blood actually had been spilt between the two of them. Bad blood. At times they were allies, but very often they were enemies. Actually, there were times of civil war we've studied that they warred and killed and took each other captive. But they were all Jews. They were all God's chosen people. They had been ruled very differently for some two centuries. They had been rivals. And indeed, in the northern kingdom, it would seem there was substantially, proportionately less godly people. They had never had a godly king. All 19 kings in a row were evil kings. And yet, Hezekiah knew there would be those in those areas who would respond in whom God was at work. And he sought to bring together these generally antagonistic, politically different, distinct people together in worship. It was a radical idea, really. Political commercials aside, I am grateful to be an American where we can speak freely, even if unkindly, unwisely, uncivilly, and sometimes untrue. On the other hand, it makes me very grateful to be a pastor instead of a politician, because you know what? In here, we can actually be unified around Christ. Uh, we can be unified about, as Christians about Christ, while the whole world out there, Americans in general, may not be unified about anything, but we understand the priority of the gospel of Christ, because we want people to know the difference between Christians and not Christians. Eternally saved and eternally lost matters. And I, I, I appreciate the privilege of vote. I do vote. I seek to vote biblical values and spiritual freedoms as best I can. I urge you to do the same. It's a chaotic, confusing political climate, but our cause and first cause must always be the cause of Christ in proclaiming the gospel clear and simple. And I, I'm really, as I said, basically grateful that... Uh, uh, that letter falsely sent in my name with a partisan twist can give me an opportunity to say that is not the most important issue. We are unified on a superior plane. Hezekiah seemed to get that. The unifying Passover elevated the hearts of whatever kinds of people got the letter to say this is important because this is about our worship of Almighty God. And in fact, it would be the Passover that would be one day, can I say, upgraded by Christ Himself at the last Passover supper. Out of the Passover, that illustration would initiate and launch the new covenant of grace under which we now live. And the cross is still what draws us together. We need to continue to think of that as we um, face the next election and then the next election or if, God forbid, there's ever a pandemic again in our lifetimes. But Hezekiah had this passion to unify, but that doesn't mean that you can ignore sin, in fact. In fact, verses 6 through 9, that's exactly what he addresses to, notice, both Israel and Judah say, hey, there are sin issues that we all have to deal with. Verse 6. At the king's command, couriers went throughout Israel and Judah with letters from the king and from his officials, which read, People of Israel, 
Now, the, the letters went to Israel and Judah. Now, it seems he refers to all of them with the original name of Israel. People of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, another name for Jacob, son of Isaac, that he may return to you who are left, who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Do not be like your fathers and brothers who were unfaithful to the Lord, the God of their fathers, so that he made them an object of horror as you see. I mean, look around you. Northern kingdom is devastated. Come to the sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever. Serve the Lord your God so that his fierce anger will turn away from you. And if you return to the Lord, then your brothers and your children will be shown compassion by their captors and will come back to this land for the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate. Seems to somehow foreshadow at least the return of many <clears throat> in the times of Ezra and Nehemiah. He will not turn his face from you if he re you return to him. So if you deal with your sin and come to the sanctuary, God will honor that and show grace. Verse 9, the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate. God is looking for our repentance. Do we deal with sin? Not the sins of others. Do we, sin, do we deal with our, our own sins? When we find ourselves bitter towards someone, when we face temptations, do we somehow shrug them off as, hey, I'm human? Or when's the last time we have made a sincere apology for something that truly revealed our sin nature? Not just, you know, sorry, I forgot. What can we expect if we take our sin seriously? Grace. The Lord your God is gracious. It reminds me of uh, 1 Peter 5, 5. Peter said, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves then, he says, in the sight of God. And actually, that's a quote from the Old Testament. The words of Solomon, Proverbs 3.34, the last king who ever reigned over a united Israel. Guys, we've got to humble ourselves. How did this invitation go over? Verse 10. The couriers went from town to town in Ephraim and Manasseh, and as far as Zebulun, another of those northern tribes, but the people scorned and ridiculed them. Nevertheless, some men of Asher, another northern tribe, Manasseh and Zebulun, guess what? Humbled themselves and went to Jerusalem. Scorned and ridiculed, of course, that was their mindset. There's no way. We're going to cross that invisible border and worship at Jerusalem. They're not our people. So they mocked those who would want to. Don't be surprised if you are mocked for following Christ. In fact, today, that's kind of the, the line where the mocking begins. It's okay to be spiritual. It's okay to believe in God. It's not okay to be a follower of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins. That's the only way to heaven. Are we prepared 
to be mocked and ridiculed for the core of our faith and our worship. It's okay to be mocked. Uh, a couple weeks ago, as Seth was speaking, I was able to join online. Uh, he was talking about Colossians 4, about, you know, make sure that you're boldly proclaiming it, but let your conversation, the way you talk with people, be such, so well-flavored, like with salt, right? That, that the only offense, and this is the point, that our only offense would be not the way we act or the, our attitude, but the offense would be the gospel of Christ. Many mocked the invitation, but some welcomed it, right? Those from uh, Asher, Manasseh, Zebulun, actually uh, one more tribe is mentioned in verse 18, Issachar. There were some. God was at work in some in the north. Nevertheless, some humbled themselves and went to Jerusalem, verse 12. Also in Judah, the hand of God was on the people to give them what? Unity of mind to carry out what the king's officials had ordered, following the word of the Lord. And a very large crowd of people ascended in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the second month. Feast of Unleavened Bread was tied with the seven days before Passover. It's all, all one. Unleavened Bread, Passover, is all one event, one of the major feasts. As they came, they removed the altars in Jerusalem, that's false altars, and cleared away the incense altars and threw them into the Kidron Valley. So they gather for this first time. They, 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 uh, they have an exciting, amazing, the rest of this chapter is about this amazing worship event as they come together in unity to celebrate the Passover. There were a few hitches to that as there always can be when you bring together different people. Let's read verse uh, 15. They slaughtered the Passover lamb on the 14th day of the second month. Uh, so they, they, they're starting a, a month late. But notice something in verse 17. Since many in the crowd had not consecrated themselves, the Levites had to kill the Passover lambs for all those who were not ceremonially clean and could not consecrate their lambs to the Lord. So there were some who hadn't followed the prescriptions. And just picture this, that in the northern kingdom, there had been no more religious tradition or, or spiritual tradition of following the Levitical law. And so they weren't in the groove of preparing for Passover. And so instead of the worshiper, because the worshiper was actually supposed to kill his own lamb, then they handed it over to the, the priest to do the all the blood and, and all that stuff. But the worshippers put to kill it, but they couldn't because they weren't consecrated. So the Levites had to do it for them. That's okay. But there were some actually who made a bigger mistake. Verse 18. Although many, although most of the many people who came from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun had not purified themselves, yet they ate the Passover contrary to what was written there were some who should not even be eating it because they hadn't followed the rules of the law kind of like you read the old testament going oh boy what's god going to do now but hezekiah prayed for them saying may the lord who is good pardon everyone who sets his heart on seeking god the lord the god of his fathers even if he is not clean according to the rules of the sanctuary and the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. 
Isn't that remarkable grace? Don't you love a story of grace, especially tucked into the Old Testament? Because we're used to sometimes God in the Old Testament, you know, defiance, and sometimes even ignorant sin is judged. But here God read their hearts. May the Lord who pardon, pardon everyone who sets his heart on seeking God. Even if they didn't follow the law. Remarkable. That's when the laws were in effect. Unlike now, God looked on the heart even then. Unlike now when, when the law is no longer in effect. God's grace. You can be sure that Hezekiah was someone who cared deeply about the details of the law. But he was not just a lawkeeper rule enforcer. He had a heart like God's. If you're going to have an impact as a leader in your home, a leader at church, an influencer among your friends and your peers, I've got to capture the heart of God's grace. May the Lord who is good pardon. Do you suppose there were some Jews in Judah watching these northerners come, you know, and gasping. They're doing it wrong. Shame on them. They should be banished. But Hezekiah prayed for them. He said, may the Lord pardon them. How good are we at showing grace? Because if we want to have an impact, grace gives us a platform. You find yourself arguing with those who don't know Christ about stuff that isn't Christ. Do you realize we could ruin our impact for the gospel just by arguing balls and strikes at a little league game? Do you realize how silly that is? Do we have a margin of grace for unbelievers who need Christ? Do we have a margin of grace for believers who are new? Do we have a margin of grace for longtime believers, maybe, who disagree or sin differently than us? Because there's none who does not sin. I think Scripture makes that pretty clear. We just sin differently. I sometimes think about how God must view his church on the planet or even just take America. If you think of, of Christ looking at his church like right now, he knows all those who are his, right? That's what it says. He knows all who are his. Imagine what all he sees. The variety of sin, basically. And he has covered it all with his grace. Barrels and barrels of endless grace. May we be more like him. In this, in this atmosphere of, of grace and worship, we shouldn't be surprised that what we now see is joy and encouragement. Verse 21. The Israelites who were present in Jerusalem. In other words, whoever came from wherever celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days with great rejoicing. 
while the Levites and the priests sang to the Lord every day, accompanied by the Lord's instruments of praise. Hezekiah spoke encouragingly to all the Levites who showed good understanding of the service of the Lord. You know, good job. For the seven days they ate their assigned portions and, and, and offered fellowship offerings and praised the Lord, the God of their fathers. The whole assembly then agreed to celebrate the festival seven more days. So for another seven days they celebrated joyfully. Where it says in verse 22 that Hezekiah spoke encouragingly. The term in the Hebrew is just, he spoke from the heart. In other words, his, his words were whatever. But what they read was his heart. We always read the heart no matter what anybody is saying. If you're talking to a clerk at a store or your cousin at the reunion, what you're really, you hear the words, but you're, you're always reading the heart. Your children are reading your heart. You're reading your children's heart. And our impact on others will depend far more on our heart than our words or the rightness of our words. And thus there was great rejoicing. There was this attitude of, 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 of grace and care that, that Hezekiah had for them. In fact, jump ahead to verse 26 for a moment. There was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the days of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. I mean, this was, this was new territory. This was exceptional joy. Not just a little, but a lot. If you're going to influence others, frankly, you need a lot of joy. People are drawn to people with joy. And there are so many people struggling that are longing for someone with joy. And so these things are really important if you care about influence. Parents, joy is a big challenge, especially when you get you know, this stage, right? There's so much correcting and so much conflict. And joy is a real challenge I can only imagine and remember. That's why we need the Spirit, because the fruit of the Spirit is love. Let's see, what's the second one? Joy. Only the Spirit can give spirit joy, spiritual joy. Philippians 4.4, in a context of conflict and trial, rejoice in the Lord and then pray. I'm convinced that uh, Hezekiah's joy in public, though, came from his worship in private. Uh, the path to joy is paved in personal worship. The whole assembly agreed to do another, another seven days. They, they weren't in a hurry to get out of church. You always want more if there's joy. Someone must have suggested, this is so good. We should keep doing this. And someone tells someone who tells a priest, who tells the head priest, who tells Hezekiah, can, can we just keep doing this? Sure, seven more days, King Hezekiah said. In fact, he says, I and our, my officials will pay for it. Remember, sacrifice is animals, animals is money. Verse 24, Hezekiah, king of Judah, 
provided a thousand bulls and seven thousand sheep and goats for the assembly, and the officials provided them with a thousand bulls and ten thousand sheep and goats. A great number of priests consecrated themselves. So whatever those numbers are, they're twice as big because they celebrated twice as long. So someone had to, had to pay the bills. And this is encouraging, verse 25. Even non-Jews were welcome to worship in unity, verse 25. The entire assembly of Judah rejoiced, south, along with the priests and Levites and all who had come from Israel, north, including the who? Mine says aliens, not what you think. Uh, foreigners, you may have, sojourners, strangers, outsiders. In other words, the people who were living, it says, in, from Israel and those who lived in Judah, because among this whole northern and southern kingdom, there were foreigners who had infiltrated through the years and, and, and for, for a lot of different reasons, some of them spiritual, but... They opened it up to everybody across racial lines. Not just the political difference of the two sides, but the racial differences. For Jews who maybe felt pretty proprietary about their faith and their temple and their Jerusalem, this might have been a stretch, but you know, once you begin to taste how grace feels or, 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 or taste, then your grace knows no bounds and your, your heart changes and, and, and you see people different and you give them the benefit of the doubt and you, you overlook stuff because you just want others to have the joy of following Christ like you do. And they did. There was, verse 26 again, there was great joy in Jerusalem for since the days of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. The priests and the Levites stood to bless the people, and God heard them. This is great. For their prayer reached heaven, his holy dwelling place. Sinners were able to commune with a holy God. The, the, the worship loop was closed. Put it this way. They had given their worship in sincerity of heart, unity of mind, filled with grace and joy. And this is one of those places where it says, God heard them. Sometimes I think we try, you know, we're worshiping and trying to, you know, sing the song a little bit and kind of tossing it up there, hope it sticks. When our, when our heart is right, there is true worship. And God receives it. God delights when we come with those attitudes, and, and I'm sure that's why you came this morning, for, for a worship loop that's closed, that God receives your worship. And you can be assured he does. Authentic worship is, a, is contagious. Grace is contagious. Joy is contagious. Encouragement is contagious. But someone has to start it. And we start it only by our own connection with the heart of God and trying to think like he thinks. Hezekiah became the catalyst of all this great spiritual fruit because he says, I will not be like my ungodly dad. I will be like my ancestor David. And he became a worship leader just as David was a leader in worship for us even today with the Psalms. Chapter 31 shows us more than of how godly people respond to godly leaders by sincerely obeying God. 
So we've seen already the response at this event of the Passover, but now we see this wasn't just a one-off moment, but rather it became the beginning of a long-term, at least a season in Judah of sincere worship. I, I know we can, all, we can go to a revival meeting, we can come and hear a sermon and be all determined, you know, we're going to do this thing. And, and, uh, but really what matters is what lasts. And Hezekiah's spiritual leadership allowed God to change hearts. And so we see a couple of things that happen. First of all, verse 1, people sought out and destroyed any residual idolatry they could find, verse 1, which is quite long. When all this had ended, the Israelites who were there went out to the towns of Judah, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. They destroyed the high places and the altars throughout Judah and Benjamin and in Ephraim and Manasseh. And after they had destroyed all of them, the Israelites returned to their own towns and to their own property. See, what they had done back in verse, um, in previous chapter when they came for the feast in verse 14, they had cleared out any false altars in the city of Jerusalem. But now they went beyond that. And they went to the towns and the villages of both, notice, Judah and Israel, various tribal areas, and destroyed more of the idolatrous Stuff, the stuff that would remain there as temptations. We studied uh, 2 Kings, uh, starting in the ministry of Elisha, and we've seen that idolatry was the prevailing sin of really both north and southern kingdoms, and it consumed their culture like greed and lust consumes ours. In fact, that's no surprise at all because essentially idolatry boiled down to greed and lust then as well. These places of worship, these high places were places of ritualistic immorality and appealing to the gods of Baal and Asherah were an effort to gain their uh, help of, in prosperity. They're the ones who will make our crops prosperous and that's an agrarian society. So, really, Satan has nothing new to tempt the world with. He just repackages greed and lust in different economies and different uh, technology. But they dealt with their sin issues. Second impact was a reorganized worship schedule. Verse 2. Hezekiah assigned the priests and Levites to divisions, each of them according to their duties as priests or Levites, to offer burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, to minister, to give thanks, and to sing praises at the gates of the Lord's dwelling. The king contributed from his own possessions for the morning and evening burnt offerings and for the burnt offerings on the Sabbaths, new moons, and appointed feasts as written in the law of the Lord. Then he ordered the people living in Jerusalem to give the portion due to the priests and Levites so they could devote themselves to the law of the Lord. So he's, he's restarting worship. Evidently, at least under Ahaz and maybe other kings, public worship in Jerusalem had ground to a halt. Because what he's writing about doing, what we see that they did, is simply what Leviticus said they should always be doing. Burnt offerings, fellowship offerings, gatekeepers, song leaders, 
All of that stuff was supposed to be the norm throughout Israel for the past 700 years. But it wasn't. Priests and Levites, he says, get to work. You see, they hadn't been doing that work. Priests and Levites had property and homes in the Levitical cities all around Israel and Judah. That's where they lived. And so evidently, they just all went back to being full-time farmers and uh, providing for themselves just like everybody else. But now if Hezekiah says, you know, now we've got to restart worship, that means they've got to start leaving their fields and coming for their rotations and, 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 and serving and keeping the temple worship going. They're going to need some financial support. Someone's going to have to pay for it because the people had not been bringing the animals, they hadn't been bringing the grain or oil offerings to the storehouses. And so Hezekiah, again, we find finances the startup. Did you notice that in verse 3? The king contributed from his own possessions for the offerings. Let's get this going. Of course, as a king, he was probably wealthy, but the spiritual example cannot be missed that if spiritual leaders are not giving generously, then those who follow won't be giving generously. Hezekiah put his money where his mouth was, and then he ordered the people to give. Come on, people. Verse 4, he ordered them, give the portion, do the priests. So that the priests can do, and Levites can do what? Devote themselves, verse 4, to the law of the Lord. Seems to involve teaching and overseeing, organizing all the processes of worship. Pay them. Principle continues today in the New Testament as you provide for full-time pastors. Then verses 6 to 19, interestingly, is all about the people engaging in generosity. It's a whole new spiritual start for them. Uh, basically, this whole chapter, I'm not going to read through the whole chapter, I'm going to show you some excerpts, but basically this whole chapter is about the people saying, okay, and they begin to give so that the worship of Israel can continue, so that Passover wasn't just a one-and-done event, but this, we would be going back to what God had planned for us to do all along. So here's a few of the excerpts of how godly leaders impacted godly people to be, people to be generous. Uh, the Israelites generously gave the first fruits of their grain. They brought a great amount, a tithe of everything, a tithe of their herds and flocks and holy things, and they piled them in, in heaps. First fruits, as we've explained at different times, first fruits meant that as they harvested their crops, they gave before they finished harvesting their crops. Growing up on a farm, I always knew that though we had started harvest, until you have the whole harvest in, you don't know what the weather will do, if the rain will blow it all down or if the hail will destroy it. But he says, by faith, give the first fruits and trust me with the rest of your harvest. And then he says they gave the tithe, the 10% that was required under the law, and they piled them in heaps. When Hezekiah and his officials came and saw the heaps, they praised the Lord. One of the priests, Azariah, said, We have enough to eat and plenty to spare because the Lord has blessed his people. God does that. Corey, another one, was in charge of the free will offerings and says, Given to God. No, it gives them to the priest, right? 
No, it was given to God. Given to the temple, right? No, given to God. We get the connection that, that by supporting the ones who would be proclaiming and, and keeping the, the law of God and teaching it, they, they were giving to God and they distributed to the priests. And, and the details are all in this chapter of how they made sure that, that the, these priest families and their kids were, were all, all provided for. And God, as it said, blessed them. Hezekiah led the nation to worship God and the people responded. Kind of a summary of what impact godly leaders have. We've seen repentance from sin. They destroyed false altars. First of all, in Jerusalem when they came for the Passover, and then when the Passover was done, they, they went out throughout the towns and villages and says, we've got to eradicate this stuff. Whatever God has said to you today that you kind of get the spark of, I wish I had that, don't forget this step. There's something that has to be eradicated from your life. Only you and the Lord and Spirit know, but know that God can help you to rid yourself of it. The body of Christ can be a part of that. Unified worship with dissimilar people. Our church is dissimilar. They were crossing the political kingdom line. They were crossing the racial line. Let the strangers, the foreigners be a part of this. They said there's something more important. Joyfully celebrate in worship of God. And, and when there's joy, it's like, let's do it longer. Sometimes, what is your time commitment to, the, to your personal worship? and to corporate worship and fellowship? Is there, is, is there a joy gap? Do, 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 you worship, do, you, do you make those commitments and then there's joy or is there joy and then you have... Yeah, it's, it's all a part of the package and someone has to take initiative and sometimes we've got to understand, dads, it's us. God gave us a very special place in our families. We've got to say this is a priority. And then giving generously to support those who lead in worship is what they did. Chapter 31. I know many of you are already deeply committed to that kind of regular form of worship. Form of worship. It's not, about, it's not just about supporting the priests. This was, this was an act of worship. And if giving ceases to be worship, it'll become a duty and a drag and a guilt. But when it's worship... The whole mindset changes. I truly love the ministry here. It's, and I, I truly always look forward to getting back when we've been on vacation. And, and one of the reasons I always look forward to getting back is because it seems like every week I hear about somebody making some step of growth in, in one of those areas we just looked at. And that deeply encourages me. Uh, you know, sometimes as, as a pastor, you wish there'd be like revival and everybody's life changes and, and Passover was great. But you know what most of life is? It's this. It's God working in you and you and you in different ways and different seasons, different circumstances, whatever God put in your life. And 
and, and, and to have the privilege of hearing from one another. And you, you, you hear stuff in your adult Bible fellowships and stuff that I don't hear, and, and I, I get, to, get to hear a lot of things. And that's where our encouragement comes. Last seven weeks, as we've studied the core values or priorities we have as a church, that's important, but what's, it, what's exciting is seeing these values lived out among us. God's truly at work. And when we, when we do that, what will, we, what will God say to us when we are influencing those God puts in our lives? Verse 20 and 21. Chapter 31. This is what Hezekiah did throughout Judah, doing what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. In everything that he undertook in the service of God's temple and in obedience to the law and the commands, he sought his God and worked wholeheartedly, and so he prospered. You would want to put your name there. I think I'm looking at rows of, of leaders and influencers. I really do. It's exciting to see when one life is impacting another. And if we are following Christ, as that passage that Seth read at the beginning, Paul says, follow me, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Uh, that's all of us. As we follow Christ, we are going to be worth following. So a couple of final Questions. Are you imitating someone unbelieving or unfaithful to the Lord? Who is influencing you? Or are you looking for spiritual leaders, mentors, and models, for example, and help? You've got to put yourself in the right place and environment spiritually. You've got to see where you're... <laughs> you can't avoid the world, but you've got to see where that world is influencing you. And are you in the environments that will spur your growth and then do you aspire to be a spiritual leader and influencer for others you got to want that and when you do like hezekiah you find that god used him to transform many others even us today as we read what god did in his life let's pray father in heaven we thank you for the privilege of walking with you may we not only walk with you but have that passion to see others walk with you. Help us, Lord, to get way beyond the, the self-centered view of I'm walking with you and so I'm good. But that we would have our eyes truly opened to those you want to impact through us. And then, Lord, that we would be humble enough to, to accept anything that you address or correct or direct us to do. Lord, we are sinful people, and it is such a privilege to know that in your grace you receive our worship when our heart is set on you. May we do so as a church family. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.